Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Rookler Politics Takeaway for Tuesday, May 30th. I'm Tom Bevan, co-founder president of RCP. And I'm Carl Cannon, Washington Bureau Chief. Morning, Tom. Did you have a good Memorial Day weekend, Carl? Tom, I got to golf. And as you know, anytime you get to golf, um, it's a good it's a good day. The weather was nice. How about you? Uh, same. I actually played a little golf, and we went to a parade on Monday, and which was quite nice. Weather was great. Can't complain. Lovely, uh, lovely weekend. Well, and, um, we, and we said, and, and Friday we paid our respects to the troops, and you, you can't do that in a, a, enough time. So uh, it was. It's also a meaningful day, and I we took it seriously as well. I was doing this in our family. I'm sure you did too. So, Carl, uh, the big news, which we talked about a little bit on Friday, was the debt ceiling, and apparently we have now uh, the at least outlines of a deal worked out between Kevin McCarthy and, and Joe Biden. And there's been a lot of commentary on it. We ran some of it on the site uh, yesterday. Who Who is the winner and loser in this deal? Well, that's what I was going to ask you. Look, so what the Republicans, so it started out, Joe, President Biden said flatly, and so did his, the White House press secretary, secretary, that they weren't going to deal with, negotiate with Republicans. Um, and they thought for some reason they had the upper hand. Um, presidents always negotiate with congressional leaders over the debt ceiling. They said, no, they're, they just they want to hurt working families and hurt the military. We're not even going to talk to them about it. They just need to do their job. That was that was president's opening gambit. My guess is, is that the White House thought they had Kevin McCarthy over a barrel that he's only, you know, he's got that in order to get to be speaker. He agreed to that rule where any one person can call for a motion, motion to vacate the speakership and you have a vote. And that, that McCarthy was hamstrung and couldn't negotiate. Uh, Kevin McCarthy surprised the White House and much of the media by shepherding a, a bill, the House bill, through a budget bill, through, th- through the House in a party line vote that would set the stage for raising the debt ceiling. And it called for, you know, freezing spending work requirement for Medicaid, you know, targeting the IRS, undo some of the clean energy provisions that the White House got through last year. And it was also clawback money. Oh, it blocked Biden's student loan relief and clawback COVID money that was was unspent. And they got none of those in the in the reported deal. Yeah. Right. But let's talk about the politics of it first then. So that that was what they did. So then so then the, the, the president said, oh, well, I guess I'm going to have to negotiate with these people. And they negotiated. And you saw on our site yesterday and again this morning, Tom, we have people have different views about who won the politics of it. Uh, Jackie Combs in, in the LA Times said uh, the arsonists are taking credit for putting out the fire. Other people had a, a different view. They thought that Glenn Beaton and Substack wrote that Biden lost the debt negotiations. That was a story that we had uh, yesterday on Memorial Day. And what he was saying is that the president said he wouldn't negotiate, but he did. And so the, the, he, it, Kevin McCarthy looked stronger than he looked before, and the president looked weaker. I, I'm not sure that's true. I, My own view, you asked me, my own view is that both sides won because Washington for like four days worked, i.e. they compromised. They negotiated the compromise. They came up with bill. Nobody got everything they wanted, but you, you, you raise the debt ceiling, you avoid this fiscal calamity. So- that's my answer. The American people won. What's yours? What do you think? I don't know. I mean, listen, it's, it, it is hard to, depending on where you look, obviously there were some Republicans who said, this is a good deal. Kevin McCarthy was on TV selling it on Sunday. You know, Steve Cortez, who was a, you know, he's a hardcore 
sort of fiscal guy and was a Trump guy, now is a DeSantis guy, but said that, you know, this is a, a good deal, a good step in the right direction. But you had Rand Paul and Ted Cruz and some of these other folks saying this is garbage and, you know, it, it just uh, it doesn't do enough. It doesn't keep any of the promises that you mentioned earlier. Uh, Miranda Devine of the New York Post complained about the, the IRS piece. And then you've got, you know, Democrats who many of the progressives complain because there are some work requirements that were put on SNAP programs and the like, not Medicaid, but the other the other work programs that they felt was a, you know, red line that Biden said he wouldn't cross and he did. So, you know, as with anything, who you think won or who you think lost depends on where you sit. I tend to agree with you. If if both sides are chafing at this, that means there was there was some compromise. That's kind of how the process is supposed to work. Not everyone's not supposed to get everything they want. Otherwise it wouldn't be a compromise. You know, Kevin McCarthy wants to suggest that this has changed the trajectory and that we're going to finally be able to put some limits on the spending of government and and that this is something that hasn't been done ever before. And so this is a uh, this is changing the overall trajectory. I I tend to doubt that. I think um, I'm not sure how much has changed. I think we're still going to have a massive debt. We're still going to be piling more money on it as we move forward because I just don't think the government can ever stop spending uh, or decrease spending. Um, although McCarthy would say they've decreased the rate of growth of spending, but that's a you know that's a sort of a pyrrhic victory. So so we'll see. I mean, in the short term, though. You know, it removes the issue as as an issue for the foreseeable future, including through the 2024 presidential campaign, which I think is probably uh, a good thing for all involved who are going to be, you know, part of that race. Well, it's also good for us political writers, Tom, because debt ceiling is a subject that makes readers' eyes glaze over it. And we actually like to write about things that uh, animate people. Liberals are right. I mean... This shouldn't be an issue every time. It, you know, Jackie Cobb's writing that the arsonists are taking credit for bringing out the fire. It's a point well taken. It, in, in a sense, it's an in one sense, it's a it's a debate we have about what the federal spending's level should be. But in terms of using the debt ceiling to do it, that's a crude and inexact way, you know, to do it. It's just it's a good thing that the some of the uh, nuttier suggestions coming from the Democratic Party. Uh, Congressman Northern Virginia, Jerry Conley was one of them, said, you know, the, the president constitution and the 14th Amendment, you know, should just ignore the debts, ignore Congress and just, you know, raise the debt ceiling. I, I'm, I'm glad it didn't come to that because that, that that's not, that's getting us further away from bipartisan governance and compromise. So in the end, look, we put this issue aside, now we can concentrate on all these other issues that separate the parties and that face the country. Well, let me, let me ask you one more question. Uh, different topic completely. You're putting me on the was, hot seat today, pal. I know. All right. And I think I I mentioned this. You weren't part of the discussion. I think you were gone last time we had we, we talked about this. Diane, because I'll get to it in a minute. Diane Feinstein. So there was a poll that came out last week by UC Berkeley's Institute of Governmental Studies found that 67% of registered voters in California believe that her Feinstein's latest illness has rendered her unfit for office. Um, And I believe that was also uh, a majority of Democrats. Only 42% though thought she she should step down. But again, almost seven out of 10 say that she's unfit for office in her current state. 
there have been some calls for her to step aside so Gavin Newsom can put somebody in her place because, you know, uh, they've got a pretty fragile majority in the Senate. What do you make of this? What do you think? Do you think she should step down? I mean, we've seen, you know, Strom Thurmond and others who are basically nearly incapacitated that are being wheeled around in the Senate and, and are there until they die. She seems to be falling into that category. She hasn't given any indication that she's going to step down uh, for health reasons or any other reason. I just wonder if this is a, is this a good thing for our democracy? Is this, is this an elected official uh, making a, a judgment that uh, that is for the good of the constituents that she represents? Well, obviously not. And, and the question really is, is she capable of making such, such judgments anymore? You know, what was reported by her office was that she missed work with shingles and encephalitis earlier this year. But that's not the issue. And it's not and it's not really the issue the voters are responding to in those polls, because the worst kept secret in American politics is that Dianne Feinstein suffers from uh, dementia or, or diminished mental capacity. I, I, I mean, I'm not a doctor. I don't know what it is, but but that's not a shock. She's going to be 90 in three weeks, Tom. She, she has no business being in the Senate. And what what brought this and even and this poll that you referred to was done before a New York Times story that appeared that has brought this up again. And she expressed surprise or confusion last year when Kamala Harris was presiding over the Senate saying that, uh, you know, what's she doing here? So, you know, Kamala Harris was her colleague, you know, Senate, uh, and then she's in the, but she resigned to take vice presidency. And the, the implicate, the inference is that she didn't know that vice presidents preside over the Senate, which is, it reminded me, I mean, I don't mean to be petty about it because this is a serious issue, but the 2008 debate with uh, Sarah Palin, Joe Biden mixed up Article 2 and Article 1 of the Constitution and, and and revealed some deep confusion about the history of the vice presidency, what the duties are of a vice president, even while attacking Dick Cheney for not knowing, but it turned out that he, Biden, didn't know. So, you know, look, we don't expect these people to be history professors or even or even constitutional scholars, but we expect them to know we expect them to be cognitively able to perform their duties. And if she's not, yeah, she should, if she, she can't, she should step aside. But it begs the question, if she can't, if she doesn't know that, who, who forces the issue here? Well, that's what I was going to ask. If she has no business being in the Senate, to use your phrase, what can you do about that? I mean, how can you, look, we've had people who, senators who've had strokes and had to leave and recover. We've got for one right now, time. right and, now. we got one in Pennsylvania. Well, Yes. Um, but this seems to be a, a, a different kettle of fish. She's not going to be getting better. But what do we do? Well, remember, she's not running for re-election and her term is up. And it, it seems like the body politic may be saddled with her for another, you know, six or seven or eight months. So it's not a, it's not a good situation. It's not a healthy situation. And in terms of what the remedy is, you know, party leaders, party elders should have gone to her um, at some point before this, long before this, and and talked to her about it. But you know those guys themselves. I mean, they're old. You know, the, you had last year at this time when Feinstein made that remark last year. She, confusion about Kamala Harris, uh, why she's in the Senate. The, the top three, you know, Democrats in the House were eighty, and the president was eighty. So this is you know this is a this is an ongoing problem. We 
in the, you know, in the nineties, people talked about term limits and age limits, but there's no other profession that you can just <laughs> go to work when you, when you're 90 and you don't know what's going on, except the United States Senate, you can do it there. I was just going to say age limits, term limits, <laughs> suddenly, you know, uh, Nikki Haley's, uh, you know, mental fitness test doesn't seem so crazy to me. Ah, uh, but she's not in her prime either, Tom. Well, that's true. Remember what Don Lemon said? Of course. Of course I guess course. Don Lemon's not in his prime because he got sacked, but we don't sack senators. I was going to say, if he thinks Nikki Haley's not in her prime, I wonder what he thinks of Diane Feinstein. <laughs> we'll leave that for another time. All right. We will leave it there for this morning. I'm Tom Babin, co-founder and president of RCP. And I'm Carl Cannon, the not normally ageist Washington bureau chief of Real Clear Politics. <laughs> and this has been the RCP Takeaway for Tuesday, May 30th, 2023.